if leadership is changing, and if the world of work is changing, then that's sort of ubiquitous across all organizations. Welcome to Inspiring Leaders, the podcast that shares ideas, perspectives, and best practices from great leaders around the world to help you become a more inspired leader. Welcome back to the Inspiring Leaders Podcast. I'm Executive Coach Terry Lepofsky, and on this week's episode, we're welcoming Dr. Marvin Washington from the University of Alberta's School of Business to discuss leading organizational change. Dr. Washington, a hearty welcome to you and a big thanks for joining us here on Inspiring Leaders. Thanks for having me, and please call me Marvin. By all means. Marvin, you're an award-winning professor, and I mean award-winning, several awards at my alma mater, the University of Alberta. Fond memories there. Go Golden Bears. You're in the School of Business, and you're the chair of the Strategic Management and Organization Department. And I know that your research, consulting, and your teaching focus on this topic, on the processes of organizational and institutional change. You also happen to be the author of not one but two books on leading organizational change. There's Pack Leadership, Lessons from the Wild Dogs of Africa that you co-wrote with Stephen Hacker. Yep, correct. There's Successful Organizational Transformation, The Five Critical Elements, again with Stephen Hacker and Marla Hacker. Yep, correct. You're quite the team player, my friend. (laughs) Yeah. You're also a pretty well-published gentleman as well. I know in academia, the comment that I often hear is, publish or perish. You're obviously doing well because I know you published a lot of papers and research, and you present your research at conferences all over the planet. Over the last dozen years, you teach a lot of undergrads, graduate students, and executives. You've worked with significant organizations like the pharmaceutical company Bayer, Hormark, Stantec Engineering, Enbridge, which is now one of North America's largest energy companies, and many, 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 many more companies around the planet, organizations all over the place, government ministries and department. So my hope is that today we can maybe tap into you and get you to leverage some of your background and your perspectives on leading organizational change. But before we do that, what leader has inspired you and why? The first one is Martin Luther King. I like Martin Luther King because I resonate with him. Here's a guy that had his PhD, academically trained, but also had a core passion. And that core passion was sort of outside of his training, theology, pastor of a local church. But he saw a problem. Since he saw the problem, he sort of raised his hand and said, I'm going to do something about that problem, knowing it was a big problem. You know, civil rights in the U.S. in the 1950s and 60s. I just sort of resonate with people that raise their hand and say, I want to do something about this problem. The other person, in a very similar way, would be my mom. And as soon as people go, wait a minute, your mom, what do you mean? If CNN wanted to look at leadership, if the BBC or CBC wanted to look at leadership, they'd pick Louis Louise Washington. Why would they pick that? Here's a woman, same thing. She grew up in a very small town in Alabama. And at some point said, there's not enough for me to do here. Went to Chicago. Eventually had four kids in a part of the Chicago where the teenage pregnancy rates off the charts, where black boys going to prison off the charts, high school dropouts off the charts. 
if you raise four kids, I like to remind you, in one bathroom, and we went high school, college, graduate, then eventually get a job, then meet a person, then marry a person, then have kids. No jail time, no prison time, no drug use. That took a lot of leadership to make that happen. Unfortunately, CDC was all following Martin Luther King, not following Louis Louise Washington. <laughs> love it. Since the world doesn't know her. I love it. And you know what? My hat is off to anybody who looks to their parents and the leadership lessons that they've received there. Yeah. That's what really shapes us. And I can see that that shaped you as well. Oh, definitely. What about Dr. Marvin Washington's background? Where did you come to become this eminent academic researcher? And You've got quite the background and quite the resume, my friend. And I really appreciate that, yeah. I mean, I started off, probably the story starts with, I'm the youngest of four kids. I knew going in early on that if I was to go to university to become something, I'd have to find a way to do it myself. And so what did that mean? That meant I studied hard, worked really hard in school. I did my undergrad degree in industrial engineering at Northwestern University. Right on. And I had my first job working at Procter & Gamble. And at Procter & Gamble, it was such a great company because they gave you everything you needed to succeed or fail. And I had some success. At some point, I am managing people that's making Zest Bar Soap. And we're making a lot of Zest Bar Soap. We're doing 200,000 bars in a eight-hour shift. So you can imagine the noise. You can imagine the energy. The worst day would be what? Quiet. That meant that the machines were broken. We weren't making Zest Bar Soap. <laughs> right. I realized at that point, I'm not doing engineering anymore. I'm doing management. I'm doing leadership. I didn't know anything about management or leadership. I was an engineer. And so I remember going back to school to get what I thought would be my MBA. And I took a class that was effectively into the management. I loved it. I thought, wow, we'll get paid to do this, to talk about leadership, talk about teamwork, talk about strategy. I quit P&D. I quit the MBA. And I went back to get my PhD. And so I went back to Northwestern. I didn't realize it was Kellogg, the number one business school at the time I was getting my PhD. How fortuitous. Uh, totally. And I loved it. And I ended up starting my career as a professor. I'm now a professor at Texas Tech University. But I missed the noise. I enjoy sort of my academic pursuits of doing research that, while I think is really important, only other academics read that, and I'm okay with that. I miss the noise of talking to people that are working in the real world. And so my first boss at Parker Gamble was Marla Hacker. You mentioned her in one of the books I wrote. You bet. Then was Stephen Hacker. He gave me a call to say, hey, I'm doing this work in Chicago with the United States Postal Service, and I'm getting tired of flying back and forth from where they were at the time, which is Virginia Tech, because she was getting her PhD. Do you want to do the work? And I thought, yeah. How cool is that? Go talk to people at the Postal Service about change and about leadership. Really taking some of my lessons learned from Parker & Gamble, but also some of my sort of research insights from starting my PhD, having reading and read all of this stuff. And that was just a great experience. If that was the first experience, the United States Postal Service, the second experience was the country of Botswana. And God bless them. They sort of were trying to make a change you can think of Botswana as a country, but it was also this sort of novel organization. They were founded or gained independence in 1966. Right, yeah. Vision in 2016. And so here's a new country slash organization that was trying to make sense of what a success looks like, really with not a lot of successful models around them. And you can think about the Congo, 
you could think about what's going on in South Africa, what was going on in Zimbabwe. Yeah. So we would fly over to Botswana for a couple of weeks and help them make sense of the change they wanted to execute. So we weren't giving them the plan because I don't know nearly as much about Botswana as they would know, but we would help them think out loud. We would help to challenge them to make sure that what they're saying had an element of purpose to it. It was connected to the spirit of Botswana. It was implementable, executable. And we did that for about, it eventually being 12 years, but we did that for about five or six years. Along the way, I transferred from teaching in Texas to teach at the University of Alberta. And about six years in, someone said, this is great what you're doing for the country, but there's South work in a for-profit business. And if someone says, I would love to help my church with it, what would you tell us more broadly about change, more broadly about leadership, not just as specific to helping me with in my ministry? That's what led us to writing our book. And so then, no surprise that one book was on the wild dogs of Africa. Right. Because our biggest struggle was that when you start thinking about concepts like leadership, teamwork, change, those are sort of culturally uh, dependent concepts. That's why we use analogy. And what do we say? A great leader gets people on the same page. Teamwork, move the change, make an assist. We're trying to just march down the field. That really didn't mean nearly as much to people in Botswana as it means to us in North America. Then we got lucky. We wanted a game ride, and our game tour guide was talking about lions and talking about cheetahs and talking about zebras and talking about wild dogs. We thought, wow, we could use those as analogies to make sense of leadership, to make sense of teamwork, to make sense of change. You got it. And that's where that sort of just took off. Pack leadership. Oh, that's brilliant. And then got to learn a lot about different organizations. And then got to see how they map on. But we didn't just leave it there. We started looking for natural wild dog teams. We started doing research on actually undergrad teams and how they do their work. See if teams that organize like wild dogs do better in terms of grades than teams that organize like lions, organize like cheetahs. And it took off to the two books that we sort of wrote. And then from there, that's what then. I use as sort of a platform for the work I started doing in Edmonton and Alberta and in other countries as well. Now, you started in, in the United States Postal Service going to Botswana. Exactly, yeah. That's going to cause you to adapt right there. <laughs> but you've adapted it back to North American corporate model as well. Yeah, I think there's sort of a couple of truisms that are happening in the world broadly. And it doesn't matter the type of organization, you're all facing this. One, the world of work is changing fast. And so there's this great quote from Jack Welch. And he says, basically, if you're changing, but not changing as fast as the world is changing, you'll be left behind. I think if you walk into a Sears department store today, Sears is different looking today than it looked five years ago. So the issue is not just Sears being changing. The issue is they're not changing fast enough. And so if, so if organizations need to change fast enough, that becomes just an uncomfortable situation, which leads to the second truism. The world of leadership is changing. And so before we led, we really led what I would sort of think through in terms of stability. We led in terms of from the top. We led from an authoritarian standpoint, whereas me, the leader, I know more than you, the follower. Me, the leader, I can tell you what the followers should go do, and then you execute that. But if the world is changing so fast, as a leader, I don't know what to tell you to go do. Maybe I've hired you because you know more about this topic than even I do. Now, how do I lead that? And so if leadership is changing, 
and if the world of work is changing, then that's sort of ubiquitous across all organizations. And that's what I find fascinating, working with government leaders, be it in the province, working with nonprofits as they're trying to rethink their model, working with for-profit businesses. They're really trying to avoid being like many of these companies that have not gone by the wayside, thinking through how do I actually lead differently at the same time? How do we think differently about our work, knowing that what's good enough for today may be different tomorrow, may be different in six months? And that part I just find fascinating. That's the noise of organizations that I enjoy talking to. You like the chaos, I can tell. But here's what I'm wondering. How do you help the leaders that are getting snowed under by that? How do you help the leaders that are overwhelmed? This is one where I find fascinating because I think what happens is many leaders appreciate that change is stressful, but then they get stressed over the stress. And part of what I do is help them recognize that change is going to be stressful, change is going to be emotional, and that's okay. One of the analogies I use, I think about getting on a roller coaster ride. And so one of my passions, if I'm not in the classroom with undergrads or working with executives, and I coach girls basketball. And we take an elite group of girls every year to the U.S. We play a big tournament in L.A., and then we play another big, even bigger tournament in Las Vegas. In the time in between, we're in Los Angeles. What do you do? Disneyland, Universal Studios, Knoxbury Farm. So imagine a bus pulling up to a parking lot of an amusement park. Right. And you see this huge roller coaster. Immediately, the girls on the bus will have emotional reactions. Some will be excited. Yeah. Some will be scared out of their mind. Some may be bored. We did this last year. Why is it exciting? Some may be totally in mystery. Maybe you've never even been on our amusement park, let alone been to Los Angeles. Maybe you've never left a small town. But as a leader, what do you do with that? You don't say the only acceptable emotion is excitement. You appreciate that emotions are natural. That's different from getting on the roller coaster ride. I think as a leader, what that means is change is emotional. It's emotional for you. You're leading people through the change. It's emotional for your followers. They're experiencing the change, and that's okay. But that's totally not how we would have been trained before. We would have been trained before to be great soldiers and just power through. Leave your heart at the door. Don't let them see you cry. And we know that's not true now. We know that issues of resiliency, vulnerability, showing more of your self-authenticity, that's what's needed to lead today, and that's what I didn't help leaders think through. Not to think through that, they have to have sort of a, be it conscious, be it soul or purpose. They have to have something that connects them to all of this. Because if not, it's just noise. It's just going to be moving them back and forth. They won't know what to hold on to. And so while it's emotional, it's not only emotional. It's emotional and it's also purposeful. I like what you were saying about not covering up the emotion, but rather recognizing that it's natural to have these emotions and then developing strategies for how to work with them. You got it. And the, and the, the word that me and a couple of colleagues use now is the idea of a spiritual quotient. And so if you think about IQ, how smart you are, you think about EQ, how you relate to others, SQ sort of says, so what's the purpose of all of this? Why are you doing this? And that answer will take small to big. Small, why are you doing this? Why did you come to work today? Bigger, why are you doing this? Why do you work there? Bigger, why are you doing this? 
why are you here in life? And I think the more answers that leaders have to those questions, the more they're able to navigate this chaos. It's a weird thing, and there was a great quote by Amazon. What he says is, while we think everything is changing and your job is to change with everything, maybe your job as a leader is to figure out what to not change. What part of you do you hold constant? And he told the story that in Amazon's world, no one has ever said, we want higher prices. Please sell us this for more money than you sold it to us for before. And so he knows that although everything else may change, the drive for low prices won't. Maybe in your business, everything may change, but the drive for high customer service won't change. Or the drive for a personal touch won't change. Or if you work in the government, the drive for connections won't change. No matter what you do and how you do it, the citizens of Alberta want to know that you care about them, Alberta Health Services. Or they want to know that you care about their child education. Or they want to know you care about their teenager. So that will never change. Everything else might change. So to understand that, you have to figure out what's the spirit in this organization. So not spirit religious, but spirit. What's your soul, value, what's the purpose of this we're doing? And I think if you can get clear there, then you'll be able to use that in all of this change. Whatever the change is that will be changing today, tomorrow. I love this whole concept of spiritual quotient, your SQ. This really does speak to something that is becoming a greater and greater impact with leaders all over the place, is understanding the purpose or their why. And I like how you broke it down to not only your capital letters why, but also the lowercase why. Why am I doing this right now and how is it going to impact people around me? Because I think we can lose sight of the bigger purpose or the bigger vision that our organizations have established. And when the inbox is piling up and there's 150 emails in there and someone's tapping you on the shoulder and it's almost time to go home, we can get a little overwhelmed and lose sight of that bigger purpose. Yeah, you got it. So remembering that there is that spiritual quotient, it also includes what am I doing right now for the people around me and what kind of an impact am I having on myself and others? You got it. And this is the one where what I find fascinating, everyone knows that everyone else is busy, but they still want to know that there is a care or a connection. That's what the why helps me with. I think the lesson where we're learning this from, and as much as there are many uh, negative connotations of millennials, this is a big positive. Because if you think about it, I'm right at the age where I think about my children being at the age of millennials. So what do they see their parents do? They saw their parents work forever and ever and ever, and often because of downsizing or because of layoffs, not have much to show for it. So they came to work asking the question, why am I working here? Because the answer can't be because I'll guarantee you lifetime employment, that deal is gone. The answer can't be because in 45 years, you'll get a great pension. You'll get a great pension. Right. Because that doesn't happen as much anymore. So now why am I working here? And the first leaders that heard that thought that was a huge threat. What do you mean why are you working here? I don't understand why you're working here. So what did they do? They went to organizations that had an answer. Those organizations became Facebook, Google, Lululemon, organizations we don't think of that have solved that question. Here's why we are here. And if this is attractive to you, join with us. This is absolutely brilliant. This is the kind of thing that I think most people out there, especially anybody who is in the business of supervising, managing, or leading other people, This is the kind of topic that they should really be zeroing in on. We're going to have to wrap up here, but before we do, 
So what do you think, Marvin, what are the biggest challenges that you see facing a lot of today's leaders? I think one of the biggest challenges facing leaders is the desire to go fast, but the need to slow it down. And what I mean by that is everything we've talked about before almost gives the impression that leaders need to go hyper fast, hyper quick. But when you think about something like spiritual potion, leaders also need to slow it down. They need to stop and think for a minute. They need to stop and reflect. And I know as soon as I say that, it feels like I'm telling people, oh, just find more time in your day. I get that's a challenge to do, but that is a challenge. How can I find five minutes of my day? I'll give you an easy one. What do you think about when you leave your car and get to your office? Often we think about the speed of the day, the 19 things need to get done. Maybe what you do is you think about it from the time you go from one room to the room where your computer is. Instead of thinking about the 50, 60 things of your to-do list, ask yourself the question, why am I walking into work today? What does success look like today? What is it I want to be that will be the best me today? That's me slowing it down. And I find that if leaders can find time, minutes here, not necessarily months of time, but minutes of time, for some of you, it may even just be seconds of time, and you can find time to slow it down. You know, what you say just resonates well. I'm thinking about so many new leaders that I see. And when you meet them, one of the first things that I notice about them is that they speak very quickly. And it's almost like they want to be perceived as capable and and able to tackle anything and handle anything that's thrown at them, no matter how quickly or how complex. I agree. And then if you look at the people who are tested and true leaders, the ones that have risen because of their skill level. Yeah. Usually, they're the ones that pause before responding. They're the ones that speak in more concise patterns. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that really stop. And instead of thinking how they're going to tackle something, like you said, they start thinking about why they're going to tackle something. You got it. Yeah. So here's my second question for you. What does inspired leadership mean to Dr. Marvin Washington? To me, inspired leadership means that you see your job as a passion project. I think work... You spend so much time doing this thing we call work that you should be excited to do this thing that we call work. I would say the same thing about family. And I go back to my two leaders, my mom and Martin Luther King. If you have kids, if you have a spouse, if you're teaching at the church, if you're coaching kids in basketball, you should be excited about that. You should be overly happy. It should be a passion project. It shouldn't just be a project. When I see inspired leaders, I see them talk about their project with passion, not just talk about their project as if it's just a project. And I think the more people out there that can bring a bit of passion, bring a bit of it, I don't mean passion in terms of like extroversion, introversion. Some of the most introverted people, when they talk about their passion project, you can connect with. So it isn't just the words or the hand movement. It really is that spirit, and you start connecting spirit to spirit. When you can connect with your team, spirit to spirit, you got it. Changes matter. If you'll figure it out. I am thanking you for taking time out of your day to help us with your perspectives. We've leveraged you to become better today. And I just wanted to say to you, thank you very much for your time. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me on to the show. Thank you. I also just want to take a couple of seconds and thank our listeners. You are the reason that we can attract great guests like Dr. Marvin Washington. Keep your comments and your ratings coming on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. That's how we trend, and that's how more people hear this podcast. 
Thanks very much, everybody, for tuning in today. Take care, and until next time, bye for now.